Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of Pep Talk, the Persuasive Evangelism Podcast. I'm Andy Bannister from the Solas Centre for Public Christianity, and I am sadly again not joined by my, po- my co-host and partner in crime, Christy Mayer, who is somewhere in Romania uh, trying to find a flight home. Uh, and so we're thinking of her, but I am flying solo today. I did threaten her. I'll just do Christy Mayer impressions and speak in a quirky, quirky voice and make Anglican references. But I've been told not to even dare to do that uh, this morning. Well, we have an exciting guest for you all the way from the other world, other side of the world. I am joined uh, on Pep Talk today by Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. Sarah, welcome to Pep Talk. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, Sarah, you're uh, an academic. You're a senior lecturer in modern European history at the University of Western Sydney. If I got that right, probably mangled that somewhere. Yes, yep, that's right. Yes. Fantastic. And I mean, what a time to be a historian of uh, modern European history, because <laughs> history is being made every day, it seems. Now, it's an interesting time, but of course, you've also got an interesting story because you are a follower of Jesus now, you're a Christian now, but you you weren't always, you weren't raised in a Christian home, right? You you grew up very much in a secular environment. Yeah, that's right. Like really loving, secular family. Um, but I actually came to faith after a pretty interesting um, journey because I explicitly defined myself as an atheist. Um, and the short kind of story is that I basically had to deconstruct my atheism. Um, I was quite confident in my atheism. Um, and then I ended up in, uh, did my PhD at Cambridge and then ended up at the university of Oxford as a junior research fellow. And there I went to a series of lectures by Peter Singer, famous atheist. Um, and that basically set me on a pathway of having to reconsider what exactly atheism entailed. Um, and so through that process and then through finally um, being given mere Christianity um, by a friend and then reading theology and being pointedly asked to by um, actually a professor of nanomaterials um, who I was at a, a dinner with, like an academic dinner, but this professor was a Christian, a scientist and a Christian, and he said to me, uh, and, and are you a believer? This was after we talked about my work. And I kind of said, uh, well, look, I used to be an atheist. I'm not an atheist anymore, but I think I'm, I'm an agnostic. And he just said, like, not in a sententious way at all, but he said, do you really think this is the kind of issue you can just sit on the fence about? And that really made me, made me question and made me have to consider what exactly the claims of the gospel were. And eventually, a few years later, I found myself in on the other side of the world again, not in the UK this time, but in Florida. And there, finally, I walked into a church for the first time as somebody earnestly seeking God. And in church, I encountered the Lord's Supper. And I heard about this God who had redeemed a broken humanity and in observing I wasn't baptized so I just sat there and observed the Lord's Supper but I observed a story embodied and I'd never encountered I don't think anything that was sacred or transcendent and yet here it was a God who was transcendent and yet who was going to remake this broken world and love me um 
And so anyway, that in short is kind of how I took a while after that as well, but that's a kind of short version of that story from atheism mm. to Christianity. I, uh, I love the fact that Peter Singer was part oh, yeah. of that journey because <laughs> yeah. I debated Singer. I did a, a radio debate with him a few years ago and I found him an absolutely fascinating character, but boy, he does force people to really realize that atheism has some entailments, right? He doesn't, exactly. he's not afraid of ducking away from those. Yes. And this is, I think, one of the great things about Singer is that he understands, he has an incredible amount of intellectual integrity because he understands that from atheism uh, you can't hold that every human life is equally of equal value, nor that every human life is inherently precious. And that was one of the key mm claims that I actually had to encounter because it basically forced me to realize, well, hold on a minute, atheism can't sustain the the moral beliefs that I take to be absolutely central to what it is to be human and to human flourishing, which is that every human life is infinitely precious, but also that we human beings are of equal moral worth. But of course, yeah, the great thing, like you say about Singer is that he quite well points out that this is, it's a, well, as he puts it, it's a Christian myth. Like it's, it requires the belief in a God who created every human being in his own image. Um, Because if you just look to the natural world, well, nature shows us that there's an incredible hierarchy in human abilities and, and disabilities and so forth. So where does that idea come from? So yeah, that's the great one of the great, ironically, things about engaging with Singer's work. Yeah. And now, of course, you inhabit the world of academia yeah. uh, as a kind of, you know, as a, as a lecturer and a professor and all the kind of things that you do. So let's now, you are now a follower of, of, of Christ. How do those two worlds intersect, Sarah? Are you somebody who has found that being uh, in the world of education is a, is a good platform uh, for your for your faith, um, how do the how do the worlds of yeah the academy and, and faith fit together for you? Yes, well, I think it de- so it depends on what part of the academy. I am in a secular public university, mm-hmm. and so what that means is that I can't or nobody can um, use the university or their job or whatever to evangelize. Um, but I think. It, what it does mean, though, I mean, God has called every person to, we were elected to serve him. And I have found, and I, I know there's another, you know, there are a few Christians at my university. Um, and I've found that you can, you can still serve God in a secular university. Um, and now for me, one of the ways that I managed to do this is that um, look, I'm, I'm actually a historian of, of course, of modern European history is the job title. Um, but effectively, I end up teaching the whole kind of history of um, Europe and of the kind of the West broadly defined. Um, and this effectively means, look, I teach the history of, of Christianity. And it means I actually have to teach about um, what the history of Christianity has looked like, but also, of course, in as part of teaching the history of Christianity, you have to teach, well, what is it that these people believed? So, for example, when I lecture on the Protestant Reformation, I have to actually explain, well, what is it that, that say, Martin Luther and his followers believed? So there is a way mm. of of actually being quite clear about, well, what are, what are these ideas that Christians believe in? Um, and there are opportunities too to ask and to talk in what we call tutorials in Australia, so the smaller group of students. Um, we have a number of like fascinating conversations about, well, what are some of the legacies of these ideas? And, and as, 
as people will know, like you don't have to be a, a Christian at all to write about and to recognize the profound influence of Christian ideas on shaping ideas, on shaping uh, principles that have been incredibly important in shaping the modern world. So human rights, for example. Um, so even the non-Christian historian Tom Holland, his work's very popular, um, has written about that kind of thing. So you can still have, even in academia, I think you can still talk about the big questions. You can still talk about, well, what, what is it that we believe in? Where do these ideas come from and so on? Hmm. But I also know we were, you know, we were talking before, uh, you know, we pressed the record button in this episode. The other thing I, I find fascinating, Sarah, is you've obviously figured out, you know, ways that, as you say, you have those conversations uh, and then that arise naturally uh, in your discipline. But also you've also figured out and thought, begun thinking through some of the ways that perhaps more in a more sort of practical and down to earth way that you can be reaching kind of friends and neighbours and your community. Because not not everyone, of course, is a, is a lecturer in history and can sort of figure out ways of, you know, weaving the gospel or, you know, allusions to the gospel into, into what yeah. they teach. But some yeah. of the other stuff you were sharing, um, yeah. it's very practical. Tell me a bit about, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So I am um, a layperson in a local um, Sydney Anglican Anglican church in Sydney with my husband. And one of the things that has just become so striking to us in the last few years um, is, we, so we've always been people who um, have, have loved sharing the gospel. But one of the things we've noticed in the last few years is that it seems that now there is a different kind of cultural moment that we're living in, which necessitates a sort of different, a different way of presenting the gospel and what it is to live as a Christian. And what I mean by that is that um, a generation or two ago, and in fact, even when I was converted, um, there was a kind of attempt by churches to think that, look, the way that we reach culture is to become like the culture. Um, but now I think we live in a in a very different cultural moment. And what I'm seeing, and I see this in my university students as well, um, in particular, this gives me, because they're so much, you know, they're basically a generation younger than me now. I, I see the kind of culture that they inhabit. And it's a culture which is so profoundly post-Christian and so lost that actually the way to speak into it is by being so unlike culture that mm. And, and actually embodying, like kind of presenting the gospel, not as a series of kind of abstract propositions that people can believe in, but rather actually inviting people into seeing a glimpse of lives lived differently. So like what I mean by that is that it used to be the case that, um, you know, sometimes that people, and, you know, there's still a place for this of kind of there's a tendency to talk about the gospel um, as a series of propositions, right, beliefs that you, that, that you believe in. And, look, that is true. But in a culture in which, look, we live in a kind of information age and in a culture too, as and this is a kind of brief, this is me as a historian here, but we live in a culture in which in the past several hundred years in the, in the Protestant West we have increasingly excarnated the faith. What I mean by that is we've kind of disembodied Christianity. We've kind of increasingly reduced the Christian life to a series of ideas that you subscribe to. Now, the problem with that is that, well, look, we all know people who would say, oh, yes, I believe this, this, and this, 
and you know that they that they're not living a, a life in relationship with God. They're not living a changed life, right? So it's easy to believe certain things. And that's that's one of the reasons why that and the kind of cultural moment that we live in that's so different to even the way it was 15 or 20 years ago, that now I think the way to present the gospel is to invite people into your life and to see and, and do this kind of in small groups. This is what we've been kind of um, trying in a kind of haphazard way in the last few years, but inviting people into your life um, and inviting them into hospitality and to seeing a life which is which is actually going to look to them profoundly weird. And paradoxically, that's the way to kind of seem relevant. And what I mean by weird is, um, so here's an example. Look, we don't by, by in any means do this perfectly. We're, you know, very imperfect people. But so we're part of a small group in church and we meet together um, during the week for, you know, meal and Bible study. Um, a lot of churches do that. We're also this this small group too is intergenerational. Um, the youngest member is is eighteen, um, and we've got young single and celibate people. We've got married couples. We've got some retirees. Our oldest member just turned seventy, and so this is first of all this is kind of weird because this is not how people gather together in the outside world, is it? Like what brings us together is our fellowship as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. So we meet together. And we um, the, you know there's always an invitation that people can, people can come and join. But it's also the case that we kind of um, try to practice hospitality um, in ways that are very open. So like after our, and we do it as a group, it's very much um, a kind of group work here. After our Sunday church service, we live pretty near the church. A small group gets together and we write it on the notice board up at church. There's often an announcement. We say, look, lunch every Sunday is on at the Stonebreaker's house, bring a plate. And the funny thing is that people, people come and it's, it's part of partly, you know, that's making disciples. It's partly, you know, discipling the people in your church, but goodness, we, what we've noticed though, is that people are so in our culture are so lonely and in so, so much need of pastoral care and of relationships with people that, I mean, how rare is it to actually be invited into somebody's home, especially someone like you don't even know? Say, so come and eat with us. And then one of the ways that we do this in and, and then kind of attempt to really point to Jesus um, is that at three o'clock we say to people, for anyone who wants to stay, we open. Now I'm going to maybe do what Christy did and make all these Anglican references, but it's not necessarily Anglican. We get up, we get out the Book of Common Prayer, um, and we say, "Look, for anyone who wants to stay, and, this, and the people in our small group often stay. There's always a small group who stays. Um, we're going to do evening prayer, and so there's this. There, so there's food that everyone kind of works together to to bring, and we work together to clean up." And then we pray together from the Book of Common Prayer, and we're often a bit of open prayer as well. And it's funny because sometimes you think about those kind of things in terms of discipleship, but actually I think this is a way that people can really present the gospel because when you invite people in and often like it's interesting, we'll have people and it's open invitation. So yeah, there'll, there'll be people that we've never met before. or We've like met at church and it's so weird, but it's actually precisely by being weird that people see that, hold on, to be invited to to know Jesus Christ is to be invited into a community, to be saved into a people who are set apart from the world. 
And look again, this is and now for a moment I'll I'll be a bit of a bit of a historian again. We live in a culture too, in an age in which we are basically ahistorical. Like in an age in which, and I, this is a conversation I've had with my my undergraduates too. Life is about self-fulfillment and constant reinvention of themselves. And so this is an age in which we don't think of ourselves any longer as being historical beings. We don't think generally in our secular post kind of Christian Western culture that we are anything but self-created autonomous individuals. But to invite people into a community where they see this glimpse of people who are saved into this historic people called the church, who call themselves brothers and sisters of different age groups and ethnic backgrounds who care for each other and make each other meals and have and like get alongside each other and, and, you know, care for people a generation older or younger than them, that is a glimpse of, of the gospel in action. And that's something that um, that we've really discovered, funnily enough, has been really quite effective. So many things I, I, I want to ask about there, Sarah, because there's, there's, there's so much wisdom in there. I mean, I think the fir- one of the first things that strikes me, of course, is this is bizarre. Of course, not new because in the Gospels, yeah. you know, we see that Jesus so often so much happens around, around meals. Yes. And I think there's something universal about the way that meals can be quite disarming. But there was something you said really struck me. You know, they use that phrase, you talked about your group being intergenerational, full of yeah. different ages. It's funny, my wife, my wife and I were talking about this just the other week, actually, and saying that if you think about it, outside of a church context, when do you meet in today's culture with people of a different age and do something together other than the one exception might be like a family Christmas. You get together with, you know, mum and dad and grandparents and, you know, so forth, extended family. But outside of that setting, there is no yeah. setting where you yes. where you get together so there is i love the way you say it it's weird but it's it, but it's good weird and i yeah. i think there's something really 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 powerful in that so yeah. i suppose just very practically because i love to be practical because then people listening to this go okay this is interesting how you say obviously you know your husband and you do this um how did you begin how do you have someone listening to this who thinks hey this is a really interesting idea where do I start? It sounds like a daft question, but how would you recommend somebody perhaps just begin taking the first little steps on this on this journey? Because I think it's it's really interesting. Yeah, being part of a small group who mm-hmm. are on board with the idea, I think, is so important. Um, we couldn't do this every Sunday um, without our small group, and mm-hmm. they. You know, they they clean up. They leave food in the pantry and and make you know. We'll bring the meal and clean up. So I think yeah, the first thing I would say is, um, hopefully you're, you're part of a, a small group in church and and share that idea and and talk about it and see if the small group will get on board. Um, that's one thing that I think has been really really quite helpful. Another thing is making it a bring a plate lunch as well and very low key. And again, I, one of the things I love about this is that. In our age of social media news feeds where everyone is so image conscious mm-hmm. and trying to take photos of things that will look good on Instagram or whatever it is, let's be – so there's an Australian word called daggy. Um, it doesn't – like let's do the opposite of image conscious. Let's do a very down-to-earth bring-a-plate lunch where there's no pressure to make any kind of gourmet food. You can pick up a barbecue chicken from the supermarket or a bag of spinach. Let's make a salad. Um, everyone brings something too, which means that it's a lot, you know, it's not an enormous amount of cost, enormous uh, cost on the host or anything like that. Bring a plate um, and it makes it really, really manageable. 
Yeah, and there are things you can do. We have various dietary requirements too, lots of gluten-free people. And, and there are stuff. things that you can do and it doesn't have to be expensive. But, you know, the funny thing is about the way God works, like we started to do this a couple of years ago. Well, we'd always um, done hospitality. We read Rosaria Butterfield's um book, the wonderful book, A Gospel Comes with a House Key. But then our senior minister died. Um, He was diagnosed with a brain tumour and given about a year to live. And in that time, it was pretty clear that everyone, including ourselves, including Greg and his family, we needed to get alongside each other and care for each other. And so it just happened that God started bringing people together, actually in suffering and sadness. Um, yeah, to to get alongside each other and to kind of meet and eat. And how, you know, what a profound thing too. You spoke about how important eating is, you know, Jesus calling Zacchaeus, for example, or knocking on the door in Revelation saying, I'm going to come in, I'm going to eat with you. Isn't it, isn't it a profound statement of God's love that he will call us into a community where we'll we'll eat a meal together and and cry together and bear suffering together, and so we can do that even with even if we happen to be at a moment in life when it's difficult. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think also as you said earlier, you know, the cultural moment we're in right now, where I think quite rightly people you need people need have an expectation to see the difference the gospel makes before mm. they kind of hear the logical arguments behind it you know there is something about the gospel that's profoundly earthy you know that connects where yeah. we, where people are and you can't describe that you can't sort of just you know talk to a colleague at, at the over the lunch break and say hey the christian community is amazing they're gonna you know, at best they'll just go oh that's nice for you at worst they'll disbelieve you but if they see it in action yes um there's something very powerful isn't there yes and i think the other thing when you ask me for sort of practical advice. The other thing that I found that is really quite striking is that it's, it is so interesting. The number of younger people in the church, like in the, in the early twenties who are really yearning for people to, and maybe they haven't been, maybe they've grown up in the church, but maybe, maybe they haven't been Christian for a long time. Maybe they're just exploring church, but they're in a culture in which increasingly their lives are lived online, in which they don't have caring relationships, and they don't really have friendships or or relationships with people who are even just 10 years older than them. But to get alongside them and to and to invite the younger people or even the older people, like to invite people of different generations in, it is really striking the kind of um, discipling relationships you can have where you get alongside people, even just 10 years younger or 10 years older than you. And that too, I think is like you were saying, it's something that we don't see in the outside world. That's, yeah. that's the real brother brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to bring the kind of conversation uh, to an end. Uh, Sarah, I'm so grateful you've shared so much practical wisdom. I love that you, you know, we started with your story from atheism to, 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 to faith, but then landed on, you know, an approach to the gospel and evangelism that, anybody can get involved in in their community thanks so much for taking the time to be on pep talk and for sharing some of that with us oh you're welcome it was great to be here and i'm also always happy to find other fans of rosaria's book because i think yeah. that, that book is has been helpful to so many we'll put a link to that 
in the uh, in the show notes. So again, thanks for being with us, and all of you listening at home. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, I and hopefully Christy, if she gets herself back from Romania, will be here in two weeks' time for another episode and another guest. Meanwhile, goodbye. <laughs>